Oh, it's so good to be with you and to celebrate Pastor Evan's ordination and you know what a gem of a pastor you have here. And um, it's been three years since I installed him, which is hard for me to believe. And I know as a pastor, sometimes that time flies by and sometimes it feels like you've been here forever and both can be good. But uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be back and to run into old friends. And uh, since I haven't been here for a little while and of course, seeing Bruce, who reminded me this morning that the Huskers won yesterday, so everyone should be in a great mood this morning. <laughs> Running into Dan Beyer in the lobby area and him saying, remember to speak slow, because, you know, I got to work on this with our small group this week, and I'm thinking, you don't remember me, do you, Dan? So <laughs> I'll try, I'll try my best, honest. But uh, it's been a while since I've been with you. I'm in now my sixth year of um, superintendency, which is hard for me to believe that that much time has passed. I brought with me today, of course, my wonderful husband, Kelly, of 33 years. And uh, he is truly a wonderful partner in ministry and support in life. And if you remember me telling you last time, we have two sons. In fact, I believe one of them came with me for uh, Pastor Evan's installation. Both of them have since married and I have a granddaughter. <laughs> so this is a bit gratuitous, I know, but I have entered the ranks of grandparenting and discovered what an immense joy and life-changing event that is, and she's blinking at me on the screen back there. Is that happening up here? No. At any rate, uh, I just wanted to share the joy with you this morning and just to let you know a little bit about what's going on in my life, but also just to thank you so much for your partnership as a church in this great work that we share. And uh, our conference mission is all about churches working together to transform lives and communities. We get to be a part of what God's doing in his world, and it's nothing more exciting than that. It's such a privilege, and it's also such a responsibility. New churches are being birthed across the conference, and thank you so much for participating in that. And Pastor Evan, I had no idea. I was showing up on a day you were taking an offering specifically for that. That's awesome. Churches that are established are being strengthened and revitalized and missional leaders are being developed and because of that, people are coming into a relationship with Jesus where their lives are being transformed. Communities are being impacted by the work of the local church and the communities where God has set them and it is such a privilege to be a part of this work, amen? Yes, it is. So this morning I chose a text that kind of highlights transformation, if you will. It talks about our good news and the good news that we have and, and our response to that. I'm going to be in Romans chapter 12 this morning. So if you want to turn there, you can, but it's also going to be on the screen. But before I begin, may I just pray for us this morning. Oh God, you've been so good to us. And as we consider your grace to us this morning, would you show us how to respond? As we look at your word, would you be our teacher? Would you be our encourager, both to each one of us individually, but also to us corporately as your beloved community? We're your followers, Jesus, and we want to go where you are leading us. And so towards that end, we pray this morning, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. 
So last year, Kelly and I took a trip to Israel with the Midwest Conference, actually, and the Canadian Conference combined. And I have so many wonderful things that I could report to you on that trip. Anyone here ever taken a trip to Israel? Okay, so just a few of you. One of the things that I enjoyed so much about this experience were some of the very natural places where we visited, places like the Sea of Galilee, or the Mount of Olives, or the Garden of Gethsemane, or even the desert, to be in places where you knew that Jesus had walked and Jesus had prayed, and to pray and to worship there was just an incredible experience, and, and it just made the stories of the Bible come alive for me. But one of the areas where I found a bit of a disconnect, at least for me, was how commercialized and contentious some of the holy sites had become. All over the Holy Land, various religious groups, Jews and Muslims, Protestants, Catholics, they have declared these holy sites and they're fighting over them. And in many of these places, they've built these large and extravagant temples and mosques and churches and mostly used for tourism nowadays. And they're lavish. They're ornate, full of holy relics and all kinds of intricate artwork, some of them beautiful to the eye, and some of them, well, you know, I'll leave that up to your judgment as you see a picture here. But it was in those places where I found it a little bit harder to imagine Jesus, often wondering, would Jesus have even hung out in some of these places? <laughs> it's a remarkable thing that Jesus never asked his followers to build him anything by way of a physical structure, not even a statue or a monument. He never asked for a church building. When Jesus said, I will build my church, he was not thinking about some architectural wonder. When he talked about building his church, he was talking about building a church of flesh and blood, of people who embody and, and live out his message, people whose everyday and ordinary life is an expression of heartfelt worship and gratitude, people so committed that their lives, their very lives would be a, a visible demonstration of Jesus at work within them. And so my text this morning speaks to this. Romans 12, chapter 1. We're going to spend our time on verse 1. And uh, just in case you're thinking one verse, really, this is going to be a short sermon, right? <laughs> Let me reassure you I have enough to say here. <laughs> Don't get too excited. Because before we drill down on this verse, what I really want to do is make some comments about chapters 1 through 11. This is a transitional verse in the book of Romans. And Romans is, I'm sure most, if not all of you know, was penned by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Like all of the rest of Scripture, it's living and active, it's true, it's reliable, it has something in it for us today. In fact, I think Romans is one of the most important letters ever written because it so carefully lays out this biblical overview of the whole gospel message, telling us basically why the good news is good news for us. And the theme of the whole book of Romans is found in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. So I'm going to read that for you now. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. 
For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by what? The righteous will live by faith. Romans 1 through 11 is fleshing out this theme, explaining how being right before God is by faith, by faith in what Christ has done for us, that we who have been dead in sin, I heard it said earlier this morning, have now been made alive in Christ, becoming children of God, becoming sons and daughters of God, becoming heirs of the promises of God. The first 11 chapters of Romans is one of the most important and detailed explanations of all that God did for us in Christ. And it's saturated with these great theological truths, and sometimes it's seen as a bit of a heady book, if you will. But all along, as we've been leading up to this point in those first 11 chapters, Paul has been driving towards this transition, toward this point here in chapter 12 where the rubber sort of meets the road, if you will. And he starts laying out for us here how this righteousness is seen in our lives. How the life of Christ is made obvious when it is at work within us. How it's lived out in our daily living and how it affects our relationships with other people. How we live toward this life that God has already started in us. This mysterious transformation that's taking place in each one of us who call Jesus Lord and Savior. And so I give you that by way of introduction to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And I want to invite you, if you would, to read with me on the screen, verse 1, since that is the conversation we're going to be having this morning. Would you read with me? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is true worship. So there it is, therefore. That transition word that's pointing back to all that Paul's been talking about up until this point, chapters 1 through 11, where Paul's been outlining in great detail the generosity of God, the goodness of God, the unwavering love that God demonstrates towards us. Paul doesn't stop at chapter 11. He goes on now and he's telling us how to apply it. Therefore, in view of God's what? In view of God's mercy. What a beautiful word that is. Our English Bibles don't show this. It's actually a plural word in the Greek. God's mercies. Partly there's a, a technical reason for that, but partly there's just such a, a multitude of things that God has done for us that are completely undeserved, that we haven't worked for, that we have not earned. And it's this idea that it's sort of a, a synonym for grace, mercy, God's undeserved favor, which he has poured out on us. You see, everything in the gospel begins with who God is and what God has done for us in Christ. We simply respond to his mercy. We're motivated by his mercy. We love because he first loved us. This is a, a fundamental truth, and for anyone who follows Jesus, I would, I would summarize it this way. I think this is core to the gospel, that the Christian life is living from grace and not for grace. The Christian life is living from grace, 
Because of what God has done for me in Christ, not for it, not trying to earn it or achieve it, because that's what it actually means to live by faith and to know God's transforming power at work within us. So I was talking to a young girl the other day, one of the young girls that I've mentored, and one of the many things that I love about our youth is this. If you are in a relationship with a person who is uh, youthful, they will be honest with you if you talk to them about what they think and how they feel. There's something very refreshing about that. They haven't yet learned to put their guard up like we do as adults, and so they'll be honest. And, and this young girl is telling me that she didn't actually think that God could love her because she'd done something that she knew was so wrong that she was convinced in her own mind that God couldn't possibly love her, that somehow what she had done had put her outside the scope of God's generosity and grace. And she's sobbing as she's telling me this because she really actually believed it. And I tell you this because this feeling isn't really particular to this young girl. I've seen it over and over. People who think that somehow something they have done has put them outside the ability of God to love and forgive them. Or at least they need to clean up their act first or reach some self-imposed standard of perfection. And, and have you noticed how this has even crept into Christian thinking? That so often we have this tendency to kind of see ourselves through the lens of failure? to look at our own shortcomings, the ways that we come up short, rather than through the lens of grace. And so my point is this. Never, never let what's wrong with you, because we all have flies, fall, flaw, we all have flies, that's an interesting one. We may have flies. We all have flaws. We all fail, we all have shortcomings. But we cannot let what's wrong with us, our own problem and challenges with sin, keep us from embracing all that is right with God. To never let the things that are wrong with us keep us from embracing all that is right with God. It's so easy to focus on all the things that are wrong with ourselves and allow those things to get in the, in, in the way of our relationship with Jesus. Things like, you know, gosh, I'm not praying enough. I haven't read the Bible enough. That may be true. Boy, I struggled with something in my life this week, this particular challenge. But the beauty of the gospel is this. When you can, when you can re really live into the truth that this is not about you, it's not about focusing on what's wrong with you, but it's all about what is right with God and that we can allow him to renew our minds and our hearts so that we might even see ourselves differently and even look at other people differently. You see, the first 11 chapters of Romans are all about God's mercy and grace. All about that. Grace means that if I'm in Christ, that I'm joined to him and his life is mine and, and I have a new status, I have a new standing before God and I can look at myself through the lens of grace. Grace means that I have a father-child relationship with God so that the spirit within me cries, Abba, Father, and I know the intimacy of being adopted into his family and nothing I can do will change that parent-child connection that we share. Grace means that I don't always know what I should pray 
for, but the spirit that is within me intercedes for me in groanings that are too deep for words, and I'm not gonna be punished because I don't know what to pray for, or maybe I don't have the right language for it. Grace means that nothing, absolutely nothing, will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grace means that God has given me in Christ all that I need to live this life that he's created me to enjoy. I do not need to live out of my shortcomings and failures trying to live up to grace because grace is already mine. Amen? Amen. And this truth, this indisputable, this unambiguous, unwavering gospel truth is transformative. When our life is built on God's truth, centered in Christ's work on the cross, grounded on his word, then we can respond out of God's truth. And we can live by faith, trusting the powerful, transformative work of grace within us. You see, now that Paul has set out in these first 11 chapters sort of detailing this mercy and grace and this goodness of God available to us, therefore, we can now ask that all-important question. What does it look like to respond to his grace? What does it look like to embrace this gift? And he's urging us here to respond. And what does he say? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. This is your appropriate response to this incredible gift. He doesn't say, do this in order to be in good standing with me. Because if you've already done this, if you've already given your life to Jesus, as I said, you're already a recipient of his grace. But this is the only right response to this incredible gift. And it's no mistake here that he says to offer your bodies. Because sometimes I'll hear someone say something like this. Well, you know, what God is really concerned about is what's going on in my heart. He's really concerned with what's going on inside of me. And while that is absolutely true, it's not actually the entire truth, is it? And so we often create this false divide between our spirit and our bodies. And Paul is saying here, I want you to offer your bodies. God made you for an embodied life so that you will display the life of Christ that is happening within you. So when Paul says, I want you to offer your bodies, he's talking about the entirety of our being, all of me, not just my inner life, but my entire life. It's what I say, it's what I do, it's how I prioritize my time and my finances and other things in my life so that what's going on inside of me becomes obvious to those around me, that it's not just my inner life, it's my entire life. And he wants it all. Some years back, there was a song called Gentle On My Mind. This is probably gonna date me back to the 60s or 70s, I don't know, but... Um, this is what I came up with. This song is about a guy who left his sleeping bag, Glenn Campbell, for those of you who remember Glenn Campbell, yeah. 
He leaves his sleeping bag behind some woman's couch and he drops in every now and then and he takes out his sleeping bag and he'd take off again and then there's this little chorus part that says, oh, you're always by the river, on the back roads, ever gentle on my mind. And when I think of that song, I think what kind of an emotionally unhealthy woman would put up with that kind of behavior? Yeah, you're always out fooling around with other women as you travel around the country, but oh, it's so good to know I'm always gentle on your mind. You would burn that sleeping bag, you would change the locks, and you would kick that bum out if you had an ounce of emotional health, right? But listen, God is not content to be on the back road by the rivers ever gentle on our minds. He's not interested in being reduced to some sentimental thought, some pleasant memory. If my response to God's goodness and grace doesn't affect my body, all of me, my moral choices, my financial choices, my physical relationships, my work life, my time, my relationships with those around me, how I treat people, the kinds of things that I say that I allow to come out of my mouth, if it doesn't affect that, is it really a right response to this incredible gift of God's amazing grace to us? And Paul's challenging us here. Look, if you really understand what it is that God has done for you, if you really understand all that you've received, sons and daughters of God, then let us commit our entire selves to him. Eugene Peterson, that amazing theologian and pastor, says it this way. He's paraphrased verse 1 in his own way. He says, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Isn't that great? Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Paul says, offer yourselves, your entire selves, as a living sacrifice. Now, maybe you've heard it said that there's a little bit of a problem with living sacrifices in that they want to continue to crawl off the altar when the heat gets turned up a little bit. You know what I mean? And so the image is one of us needing to continually offer ourselves up to God. That's the kind of language here because, frankly, sometimes we get it right and other times we fail miserably, don't we? little true confession here. Recently, I've found myself trying to figure out how to live for Jesus in this election season. Anyone with me? Yeah. I have watched far too much of this ugly public rhetoric having just feelings of disgust and anger and and I have to admit this I've actually found myself detesting it's not too strong of a word various individuals and I know that's not what God's asking me to dwell on and I know it's not helpful those kinds of thoughts but sometimes it feels so good and I know it's so wrong no matter how right I am <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Even though I fervently and adamantly disagree with what some of these folks are saying and I believe their ideologies are so deeply flawed, it does not give me the right 
to look upon someone who God has created in his image, whom God loves and longs to redeem with less value than he does, with less love than he does. And I gotta tell you, it's killing me to say that this morning because I am guilty as charged. But every time I commit that, every time those thoughts come creeping in, I am trying, I am trying to, every time I slide off the altar, if you will, crawl back up and ask for forgiveness and offer my thoughts back to Jesus again and again and again so that he can renew my mind and my thinking. And I want to do that in every area of my life, my thought life, my mind, the things that I say, all of my relationships, my finances, my physical self, every area of my life. I stand before you simply admitting I've got a long way to go. But we're on this journey together, aren't we, church? This journey towards, as Pastor Evans said, becoming what God wants us to be. Paul is saying here, listen, followers of Jesus, you understand of all people the grace and the goodness of God, so take your bodies and your mind, all of you, those things that are the most important to you, the most valuable, and simply admit it, Jesus, I could never repay you for what you've done for me, but here I am, I want to place all of me at your disposal. It's my way of showing how much I value you, how much I value you and all that you've done for me. Here I am, Lord, and that is holy and pleasing to God. That is true worship, not because we've attained some sort of perfection, but because we keep crawling back up to the altar every time we fall short, because we keep crawling back up to the altar, making ourselves available to him, and God is pleased when I come offering all of myself to him. Charles Wesley sang, Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. In view of God's mercy, how could offering anything less than all of me be adequate? That's true worship. Now, Paul is not saying here that we come to church to worship. In fact, I would say it's more accurate to say we come worshiping to church because worship is what we do every single day. It's what you do on Tuesday morning when you're at work or at school. It's what you do on Thursday night as you're sitting around the table with your family or maybe watching the debates. It's what you do on Saturday when you're at that football game or when you hang out with a group of friends. That's where worship takes place. We talk about worship services, but that's actually simply a small slice of our week. Jesus built his church not like one of those big, giant, beautiful buildings I saw in Israel, but out of flesh and blood to be a visible demonstration of his life within us every single day in the ordinary moments as well as in the Sunday morning expressions. So don't leave here because I don't want to get in trouble with Pastor Evan. Just kidding hearing me say that this gathering for worship on Sunday is less important because that's certainly not true. Scripture points to the fact that it matters deeply to the heart of God 
that we carve out time to gather together on a weekly basis. That's the rhythm that he has given us and to prioritize for this gathering. But the way I see it, Sunday morning, this worship experience should simply be the high point of a week of gratitude and worship. And we come together to to celebrate what it is that God's done and what he is doing and what he is going to do. We come together to exalt him and praise him and to be encouraged that even when we're struggling and even when the political landscape looks dismal, that Jesus is still in our midst and friends, he is on his throne. And to come together to be reminded that even when we messed up during the week, that his grace is more than enough to be renewed, to be sent back out to serve and to share Jesus with those around us. Gathering together as the body of Christ is an essential part of worship, perhaps the high point of our week of worship. But when we leave here this morning, the church has left the building. Romans 12.1 is this call on our entire lives our embodied lives, our everyday moments, and our Sunday morning expressions. And friends, or perhaps I should say sons and daughters of God, sisters and brothers in Christ, we get to live from grace and not for grace, and that's incredibly freeing that we don't have to earn it, that we just get to embrace what God has done for us, It's already ours, but the only reasonable response is to offer all that we have back to him. To say, in view of all you've done for me, Jesus, I'm all in for you. To say, in view of all you've done for us as a church, Jesus, we are all in for you. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. God, that is our prayer this morning. That we would say, after all you've done for us, Jesus, we are all in for you. Oh God, may we as your church, as people who embody and and live out your message, may we be a visible demonstration of the life of Jesus within us that is so obvious to those around us. I thank you for this congregation, for their faithfulness to you over the years and years of ministry. I thank you for their commitment to mission. But more than that, Lord, I give thanks to you for your faithfulness to them. May they sense your goodness and your provision and your grace and all of the good things that you want to pour out for them. And I pray, God, that you will pour out the fresh wind of your spirit, that you will open powerful opportunities for this body of believers to bring your message of reconciliation and hope to friends and neighbors and co-workers and family members and co-students and, and this community in general. And I pray that you would reinvigorate their sense of mission, give them new dreams and spirit-inspired imaginations as they envision the future that you are calling them into. May they hear it, Lord. 
And God, I ask that you would use this church as you already have to powerfully advance your kingdom here on earth. And God, we pray that all the glory will be yours. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. And all God's people said, amen.